Hi folks, I am Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on March the 6th, 2016. This is part 5 of the series. Very important series, this. Very important. Beyond politics and voting and all that kind of stuff, because that's bypassed long ago, really. It really is. We're not run by the politicians. And it's from part 5 of From the Master's Mouthpiece. That's a short title, and the long title is From the Master's Mouthpiece, Coming Soon, Your Planned Future of Gloom and Doom. I've mentioned quite a few times that occasionally I get a a letter in from someone who's still stuck in their indoctrination, and they'll say, you know, there's fantastic information, but you don't give us any hope. Well, I'm not here to give you hope. Hope comes from within yourself, you see. And you've been trained your whole life long to look for some champion to ride into town and clean it all up for you on your behalf, like Clint Eastwood. Well, that's not what I do. I leave that to the the the, the, the put out there well funded managers of your brains, you see, uh, who've been awfully successful, uh, who promise you all these things. Just vote for this one or that one or whatever it happens to be. But you tell me one politician. And tell me if you've ever heard of any politician who wasn't killed for saying these things, that they would tear up all these treaties that they've signed with the United Nations, the World Trade Organization, all these free trade negotiations. Any politician who's ever mentioned that they would get rid of their central banking system as it stands and establish their own system for creating money and managing it by themselves, not farming it out to private individuals and corporations that end up owning you, you see, and actually running a country on your behalf of those who live within the country and creating self-sufficiency and national sufficiency, not interdependence. If you're interdependent, you're no longer a nation. When you depend on your food being brought in, by big agri-food businesses, international, from across the world, you're done for. If you have your money in, run by privateers, which we all have now, it's been here for a long time actually, who love wars, that's why they're always pushing for wars, because it's a great time to loan money to governments and have compound interest. You never get out from underneath it. They create massive welfare states because it ship all your jobs overseas too. And again, government borrows money from these privateers. Uh, Tell me anything that will really change anything from the politicians that are put in front of you to elect. I don't get caught up in the circuses for the public. And if anyone who's really followed what I've been saying for many, many, many years will know that I tell them the facts of those who run the world and run your nations, and have run them the whole of your lives. And your parents and grandparents too, and even before that. has to change, you see. And it isn't going to change, because uh, the same characters will bring in, they are bringing in a new system, who already, they already own your system, and everybody else's system. And they're bringing in the update to their new system, not yours, 
you're all affected by it because it affects all of you naturally through taxation and all the big changes in COP21 and COP45 and all the other ones that they have planned, all their 10, 30, 40 year plans that they used when they ran the communist systems as well. And as Albert Pike said, the father of the international revolutionaries in Freemasonry, as he said, that those who want to use their own intellect, own intellect, understand, not giving someone else, oh, this champion's going to do all, no, no, your intellect, and your mouth attached to it as well. If you don't use your own, you are therefore, by law, you see, this is all by law, stake on the table and beasts of burden by choice and consent. Now getting back to the Ministry of Defense think tank's projection of the future, and it's for all NATO countries, not just Britain and so on, you'll find that's a global strategic trends out to 2045. And see, understand, these are the, the big, they always have 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 year plans for different projects, you see. You saw all through the Soviet system as well. The United Nations uses it. And they, I'm giving you little clues here, folks. <laughs> if you can't think for yourselves, that you're not run by yourselves or the people that you think you elect. And there's no one that you think you elect who doesn't know what I'm talking about. They know their role. They know they'll do what they're told once they're in government, as they always have for generations. And uh, this is the big plan, you see, the great work, as they say. And on page 86 of the strategic trends. And again, I'll, I put these PDFs up and every article I mention I put up as well for you to look for yourself and read it yourself. I'm not making this stuff up. And if it's bad news to you, don't blame me, you see. So it's, it goes on about national identity. This is by 2045. National identity. By 2045, more individuals are likely to define themselves less by their country of origin or residents than they do today. In developing countries, some people may continue to feel more closely bound by tribal allegiances or other loyalties than connected to the state. Globally, the state will probably be of less relevance to the individual due to the movement of people, information, and ideas across national boundaries. As individuals feel less connected to the state, they are also likely to become less interested in supporting it's the state. This is far likely to be uh, the case in autocratic regimes where nationalism may increase. And there are certain ones that have been chosen, very few actually, um, <laughs> very, very few, uh, to stay nationalistic. And uh, this is where nationalism may increase. Participation in politics in mature democracies looks likely to continue to fall. Uh, which could, and of course, it's been, there's no participation in politics. It's all run by non-governmental organizations and groups with, all under the umbrella of the United Nations. They're fragmented society and into all kinds of groups, you see, which they indoctrinate through education and through, uh, it's worse at the university level, as you all know, 
That's one of the prime goals of universities is doctrination and to join a group. Oh, you're, you're a man, well, you've got to join this group here. Oh, you're a man that's not quite sure, well, you join this group here. And same with women and so on and so on and so on. And there's a, a massive non-governmental organization already set up and running to rule your mind for you since you don't want to rule it yourself. Says, finally, as global connectedness, particularly economic interdependence, here again, grows, people may move abroad more frequently. We're also seeing this trend with UN figures, showing that by two, in 2013, the number of international migrants worldwide reached 232 million, up from 175 million in 2000 and 154 million in 1990. And then it goes into... Uh, uh, this this one here. They go into state provision of services and that some countries will be unable to manage their services. And there'll be protests and so on breaking out. Led to be facilitated by advanced in communications technology, allowing those who are discontent with their governments to challenge it collaboratively. As seen in the Arab Spring, that was all managed, as you know, by the CIA and the Mossad and George Soros and various other organizations. This could lead to increased uh, civil unrest and, in extreme cases, a disintegration of order in affected countries. Key service that the state is less likely to be able to provide in the future is security, particularly information and security. As people live more of their lives online, uh, safeguards personal, safeguarding personal data likely to be increasingly important. Private companies already provide much of the communications infrastructure from delivering posts to providing phone and email service. And it seems likely that in response to customer demands, they will take a greater responsibility for making sure those services are secure. But it then contradicts itself too as you go on about privacy and the longevity of data storage means that there's an ever-growing record of people's activity and attempts to avoid leaving a digital footprint may become increasingly difficult. At the same time, growth in the number of surveillance devices increasing at a rapid rate unless individuals go to great lengths to avoid detection, it's likely that by 2045, a near-complete record of their movements could be built up by an interested party. Well, it's all to do with your government and government agencies, and they actually go through that too. It's quite, uh, it's everything you should know already, really, uh, but just to become much more and more intensive and, and I've already trained a whole generation, a young generation, that, that privacy is a thing of the past. You don't need it anymore. Why would you want it? Uh, it's interesting how people, again, want to fit in to the new normal. And we're always given new normals to fit in to. It's called political correctness. Uh, and to be, belong to the, the general herd, you see. A herd mentality. And those who manage us all always give us the herd mentality and all the rules for it so that you can belong to it, you see. And if you're not, if you want to, to have some privacy, you must be doing something wrong. You're not nice, you're not good. You're not good like me. And they do their social preening and all that kind of stuff. And um, they've got about religion and the ideology. Let to remain a significant component of people's identity with evangelical Christianity growing in popularity in Latin America, Asia, and Africa as well as Islam becoming more prevalent in the Middle East and North Africa. It was becoming more prevalent across the whole of Europe and, and Britain. <laughs> it has been for years in Britain. And, uh, and the States, too, still get that one uh, coming in big time. 
And it says some religions are likely to become increasingly politically assertive. And it will continue to be assisted by globalization and by developments in communications, technology, and so on and so on. And again, I'll put all this up for you to read through for yourselves. It's, it's, a, it's a long uh, PDF on, on the global strategic trends out to 2045. And this ties in with uh, the following articles too. And this one is on a proposed United States Commission and it would explore security, privacy in the digital age, you see. Well, they've been doing that forever, as you well know. And it says that um, leaders of two key U.S. congressional committees involved in national security joined together Wednesday to propose the creation of a national commission to explore the sometimes conflicting issues of privacy and security in the digital era. Representative Michael McCall uh, is from Texas, chairs the House Homeland Security Committee, and Senator Marks Warner uh, from Virginia, I think, is a leading member of the Senate Select Intelligence Committee. Together, are calling for the creation of, a, of the bipartisan McCall-Warner Digital Security Commission that would bring together experts who understand the complexity and the stakes to develop viable recommendations on how to balance competing digital security priorities. This is, the, this is a 9-11-style commission to address the biggest challenge to federal law enforcement I've ever seen in my lifetime, said Representative McCall, during a discussion at the Bipartisan Policy Center. If you can't see what the terrorists are saying, you have a very urgent security issue. So you're not going to get any privacy. It's going to get worse and worse and worse under the guise of security. It's the basic uh, idea, the whole thing. And it says the proposal was uh, months in the making, uh, but becomes just as the digital privacy and national security have moved front and center in the legal standoff between Apple Computer and the FBI. And you know that's just uh, a precedent they're after right now. Uh, because um, they could, if you think they can't really uh, get into the stuff in an iPhone, you forget it. Of course they can do it. They want to. See, understand, to be, uh, you can't be called a tyranny when everything becomes uh, legalized that they're doing to you. <laughs> so legality is put on the And some people will say, well, it's legal, you know. Whereas a tyrant wouldn't do it. Oh, no, a tyrant would just do it and run roughshod over the whole thing. And that's how it runs. It's all psychology, all of it. And um, as it said in the, in the PDF, since 2015, this is the same article I'm reading right now, uh, this actual article on it, though, not from the, uh, but it ties right in with it. Since 2014, the FBI has repeatedly expressed concern about the spread of encryption in digital devices, such with FBI Director James Cag- uh, Comey warning that encryption threatens to lead us, all of us to a very dark place. Very dark, you see. This isn't a commission on encryption, said Warner. Encryption is here to stay, and it protects America's personal financial information and intellectual capital. Digital security is a purpose of the commission. This is not a battle between privacy and security, which is rubbish. And the next article is this one. The Apple and FBI fight isn't about privacy versus security. Don't be misled. That's from Wired. Throughout the ongoing fight between Apple and the FBI over over custom access to an iPhone used by one of the two terrorists who killed 14 people in San Bernardino, the government has uh, framed the argument as a simple trade-off. You must surrender a little privacy if you want more security. The scales don't balance quite so neatly. 
though there's nothing secure about giving the FBI their way. Still, it's been an effective way for the government to win over the public on its way to trying to win over the courts. FBI Director James Comey most recently pushed the dichotomy in an op-ed for lawfare, saying we have an awesome new technology that creates a serious tension between two values we all treasure, privacy and safety rights. That tension should not be resolved by corporations that sell stuff for a living. (laughs) It also should not be resolved by the FBI, which investigates for a living. It also should not be framed as an absolute. Doing so presents the issue to the American public in a way that makes the FBI's request palatable, while obfuscating the potentially dangerous precedent it would represent. And he goes through the story, which I'm sure you already know. Uh, what it's all about, really. That's how we're always manipulated. Then this article here says, Do we really have a right to privacy? Do we really have it? eh?" And it says here, Apple's decision to challenge a federal court order to help the FBI hack into a shooting suspect's iPhone 5C is drawing it into focus, a battle which has been brewing for the past several years. The way this debate has been shaped thus far uh, is as follows. Which do we value more, privacy or security? But the argument is overly simplistic and overlooks a key question. Do we actually have a right to digital privacy in the first place? Sorry to say, personally, I think we should, but that doesn't mean that we actually do. Right to privacy is a bedrock concept in the U.S. society and a guiding principle in the legal system. But if you look for it in the U.S. Constitution or the Bill of Rights, you won't find it. That's because privacy rights aren't as clear-cut as many Americans generally think they are. Even the most privileged and private areas of our lives and homes, cars, bodies, we do not enjoy an unlimited level of freedom from government intrusion. Everyone is susceptible to government invasion of privacy when it is warranted. Consider how much of our sense of personal information has no guarantee of privacy at all. None of us can make our voter registration, home ownership records, tax records, liens, or court records totally private unless under exceptional circumstances. It depends who you are and see. Our household garbage is also publicly accessible when you put the trash out by the road. Even our personal health records are not as private as many think they are. They're they're completely uh, open for government agencies and have been for a long time. Our right to privacy is based largely upon the Fourth Amendment and so on. And it goes on to say the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or Affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the person or things to be seized. The reality is that the Americans' our right to privacy has always been conditional upon the needs of, of governments. It's the right to privacy until a judge issues a warrant. Then you go on and on and on. These are all moot points to me because I'm way beyond that. Anyway, it says this the next article says. Um, Download Festival, well, it's a festival actually. This article says facial recognition technology used at event could be coming to festivals nationwide. Uh, they've been doing this forever, even before they were in the digital age that we know of, because the government's been way ahead of us, of course, with the computers and so on. And they were photographing demonstrators, at least from the, the 60s and even before that. 
in all countries that I know of. And it says, um, they give you going to music festivals, for instance, and what happens there, fancy dresses and fun themes and so on. Uh, but the thing is, um, that's when they, they, they photograph you all. It says, music festivals across the country could soon scan the faces of everyone on site after Leicestershire police admitted several organisers want the facial recognition software that Force has introduced at this year's download festival at Donington Park. Around 90,000 people attending the five-day rock event in Derby will have their faces scanned by strategically placed cameras, which are then compared with a database of custody images across Europe. For the whole Europe, you see. The, the force has trialled the system since April 2014 in controlled environments. That's in universities and places you have no idea. Even toilets, you have no idea, you see. But this is the first time in the portable neoface surveillance technology made by NEC Corporation is being used outdoors in the UK on this scale. The police said it hoped the system would enable them to find organised criminals who prey on uh, festival goers who are often victims of theft. And it goes through this one too, and who says what, and all the rest of it. And the police, the police have their version of it too. It's all keep you safe and secure, etc., etc., etc. Now this topic, this leads into, for those who are still awake, you see, uh, because there's no rah 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 cheerleading here, you see, and cuss words and, and politicians yelling at each other and screaming. A great circus show for for those who think is. That's, that's what runs the countries. But uh, this is awfully important, what I'm going to talk about next. Awfully important. It's about resources. Now, I've talked about austerity over the years, and this is part of the plan, and eventually all your money will go to all the services you need and all the energy requirements you need, and you'll be paying too for carbon taxes and energy taxes and yada yada, till all your spending money is gone, and you'll be lucky to have any money left to pay the basic necessities. That's what it's all about, folks. This is the new big part of the ones who already own the world. And as far as you're concerned, they own all the nations, all of you in it too. You remember, you're a human resource. But uh, that's what they call you now, you see. So this is about resources, and we're back to the military global strategic trends, the military think tank. Demand for resources of all kinds is likely to increase out to 2045 as the world's population rises to around 9 billion. While the demand for food will grow, some countries are likely to experience significant declines in agricultural productivity. Water shortages are likely to be particularly acute in many areas, exacerbated by increasing demand and climate change. Climate change, you see, which they, they control the weather too. In the 2045 time frame, coal and hydrocarbons are likely to remain the most important source of energy, with renewable and nuclear energy likely to make an increasing contribution. Water. So you're down to your heating and so on. Uh, believe you me, you're, you're, you're going to freeze to death, just like they do in Britain, a lot of the people today, and have for years now. It's now normal in Britain to, to, to freeze to death in your own home. Water. One of the first talks I ever gave many, many years ago was about resources and how everything you need, your basics even for living, will be used like a massive truncheon upon you. 
a baton. And you were lucky to, to get your, your basic needs met. Even at a current population level, supply of fresh water is arguably insufficient. Factors such as population growth, increasing demand from industry and agriculture, and reliance on unsustainable, there's that term again, water sources, such as aquifers, are likely to mean that many people may not have reliable access to adequate supplies of water. By 2045, global agricultural water consumption could increase by 19%, with global fresh water demands likely to grow by 55% in the same period. Estimates of those suffering from water shortages today may vary between 450 million and more than 1.3 billion people without mitigation. Um, by 2045 or sooner, around 3.9 billion people, or over 40% of the world's population, are likely to be experiencing water stress. This represents a significant increase on the estimated 2.6 billion people suffering water shortages in 2000. The poorest people often have extremely limited access to fresh water. Someone living in a slum may only be able to access about 5 to 10 litres daily while a middle- or high-income individual living in the same city may use about 50 to 150 litres per day. An estimated 2.2 million people die every year from diseases that cause diarrhoea because of inadequate water and sanitation. This is likely to be uh, problematic by 2050, when 1.4 billion people, mainly living in developing countries, are unlikely to have basic sanitation. Efforts to improve safe water supply and health care access have succeeded in reducing deaths from diarrhoea, but these gains may be thwarted as the number of people living in slums increase, while environmental uh, change places further stress in fresh water availability. This is their lead-up to what they're really after, you see. But they're giving you all the clues at the same time. Now, this is a long section because it touches on everything that you need and gives you a lot of clues as well about what's being introduced and how it literally will eradicate what you see as private property of any kind. Because they touch on these particular aspects of water, food, energy, and heating, everything, basically. And um, also put up a PDF that ties in with this because, again, everything's connected, you see. This big, huge agenda, nothing to do with your politics or who votes and so on, who votes for whom, or the politicians you vote for. Uh, it says, um, United Nations, it's called UNEP actually, which is actually uh, United Nations Environment Programme. So you wouldn't think an environment programme encapsulates all these resources and their plans for it, but ties in completely with uh, the, the NATO Global Strategic Trends, the MOD one, that I'm talking about tonight. I'll put that PDF up from the United Nations UNEP for those who want to look at it and understand what's really going on. Most folk don't want to understand what's really going on. They want, again, the champion, the Clint Eastwood, to ride into town uh, and and sort things out for the the villagers that are all scared stiff to do it in themselves, you see. Now remember, too, that 
your mind is controlled by the media. And the media goes into action with the Ministry of Defense and all the other groups in the United Nations without telling you that the articles are putting out tying completely with these other organizations, you see? That's how it's all done. That's why knowledge is just deliberately scattered. It's not so scattered now because a meme, a meme is set out there for you to follow. And that's what works quietly on your mind in a subconscious way. And when things happen that you've read, it ties in with other things that you've read. But you're only conscious of where exactly you found the article or whatever it read it from or heard it from, bits and bytes of information. Uh, then you think it's all, I guess it's normal, you see, so you go along with it. It's all worked out that way. The scientists calculate our debt to the earth. Remember the last couple of articles I've talked about here too, to do with uh, resources and so on. Scientists calculate our debts to the earth. Our, see, so there's a premise of you've got a debt to the earth, you see, you, all of you. Researchers in the U.S. have found a way to put a monetary value on the multitude of vital services and assets we rely on nature to provide us cost-free. It's amazing. Money's the answer to the climate, you see. And, and, and run through by certain fingers and hands, and you have talked about who before, and you all know. And here it goes again. But they've got science on their side. You don't use God anymore. You use science, you see. You've all been conditioned to believe in science. Perhaps for the first time, scientists have put a direct cash value. It's amazing. They must have an awful lot of free time, these scientists, eh? that uh, they go into all economics and that and so on and, and different areas to do with banking and who's going to run all the carbon credits and also all the natural capital. You see? Natural capital. This term you hear it more and more frequently. And it says, so the direct cash value and the metaphor that conservationists, you know, conservationists, you know, the guys that just believe that they've got the right uh, agenda. Anybody can be a conservationist. Uh, and um, but it sounds like almost like a holy priesthood now, the way it's been drummed into your heads, isn't it? They're ordinary folk. That a lot of them get paid uh, by the big uh, foundations to lead the herds of followers along, the big NGOs, to demand things, you see. That's how it's all run, the big corporations. This is, in effect, the money humans don't have to spend on services that nature supplies for free, such as crop pollination, water purification, and coastal protection by wetlands, sandbanks, and reefs, you see. And one high-value transaction supplied gratis by nature is groundwater. For farmers, water in the subterranean aquifers represents money in the bank as groundwater underwrites 40% of the world food population. Eli Fenichel, assistant professor at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and one of the other big uh, grants he gets given from uh, whom to supplement his massive salary, and colleagues looked at withdrawals from the Kansas High Plains Aquifer and report in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that between 1996 and 2005, Kansas lost approximately $110 million a year. 
The losses represented the depletion of aquifers as farmers withdraw this ultimate nature capital to support food production, and the total for the decade was $1.1 billion, roughly equal to Kansas State's 2005 budget surplus. It is designed to say substantially more than the sums invested in schools over the same period. They're starting to say, our work can help governments and businesses track the sustainable use of natural resources. Without a calculation like ours, policymakers would lack critical information about how food production impacts their water health. And it says, um, that's by the, the Eli, of course. It isn't, the lie part's pretty good. It isn't often that economists can place any direct value in a national resource. Why do they use us as national resources too, human resources? Farming and industry evolved as it did because the natural resources were there in the first place. Well, if it's natural and it's there in the first place, then how can these big boys step in and say we're going to tax you on it all? If it's for all of us and it's there in the first place, that's the natural part of it. Conservationists, again, this holy priesthood, sometimes pose the question if plants had not evolved alkaloids that could be exploited as pharmaceutical drugs, or if there were no bees to pollinate fruit blossom, that, uh, what would humans have to pay to get someone else to do these things? Well, we wouldn't be here, we'd all be dead, wouldn't we? Because, uh, you know, if nothing get, gets pollinated, we'd all be starving, or else we'd be totally meat eaters, of course. And if forests failed to absorb humans' carbon emissions from fossil fuel combustion and greenhouse gas release, how bad could global warming get? Oh, global warming, eh? They've been spraying the skies daily all over the place since 1998. And anyone who can see for themselves have, have they noticed it without being told in the first place. But such questions are rhetorical. It's all Wizard of Oz, isn't it? Part of persuasive argument for conserving forests or using pesticides is sparingly. City planners, geophysicists, and climate scientists alike. You know, climate scientists, you see. It's a great scientist now, climate. These guys couldn't get a job before they, they, they created the whole, the whole con. Because climate's always been changing, regardless if there's humans on it or not. But again, it's a con like everything else. It's to rob you and put you into an ultimate serfdom to the world state, you see. I've gone through the whole idea that the Rockefellers took into their system. Remember, they, they were the ones who, start, who really were the head of the CFR for a long time in the U.S., which is just the, the part of the Royal Institute for International Affairs in Britain, private organizations run by the guys that own, also own all the big banks, you see. And we'll get all your carbon and energy taxes. They brought into their system the Technocracy Inc. from the 1930s, where everything's valued on energy. Everything. Everything. And that's where all your taxes and money will go. And you'll be a slave to the big boys who will manage it all for you. you know, the new gods, you see. But anyway, it's goes on to say here. Uh, and they're going about living reefs and protect maritime cities from the worst storms, etc. But the latest study delivers a relatively sure balance sheet of costs and rewards, profits and losses. The scientists used economic principles to value traditional assets and then factored in ecosystem changes and human behavior. 
that might make such assets increase or reduce in value. This could help governments and business redefine spending on nature conservation as investment. Isn't that amazing? Always going something, the same con that's been used for thousands of years uh, by those who brought in the con money system and compound interest and debt and loans and taxation, isn't it? Isn't it? It's amazing, eh? The idea that we can actually measure changes in the value of natural capital is really important, Dr. Fenichel says. shows that in places like Kansas, where groundwater is a critically important asset, there's a way to measure and keep tabs on resources as part of a larger portfolio. In a world where data is more and more available, it should be possible to do this more often. I think that bodes well for guiding policies, government policies aimed at maintaining all of society's wealth. Why do we have to pay for it all, you see, if it goes into the hands of others? Basic stuff like that. It's planned that way, you see. And for a business to be sustainable, its reserved capital must not decline with time. The new approach means that the natural capital reserve of groundwater can be turned into a set of figures on a balance sheet. So it isn't just carbon taxes, it's a whole of... Technocracy Inc. You can download that yourself. You see? Asset management. As I'm tell- you're living a script, a very old plan, folks. Asset management, steady year on year depletion doesn't look good like good uh, asset management. And it doesn't look sustainable. It's a sustainable again, you see. But the Kansas study could help as a template for other such evaluations. Without an apples-to-apples valuation approach, well, they should just, you know, pass a law and get them to break into it. The value of natural capital cannot be measured against other assets and expenses. Says Joshua Abbott, associate professor at Arizona State University School of Sustainability and one of the authors of the report. I'm not surprised. Our work can help government and businesses track the sustainable use of natural resources. Without a calculation like ours, policymakers would lack critical information about how food production impacts our wealth, our water wealth. And Dr. Fenichel adds, I'm not saying it will be easy or that we are going to measure natural capital prices for everything, everywhere in the world, but I think we are showing that it is feasible. It won't be for everywhere in the world, but we know who's going to get it. You know, we know that. We're laying the foundations for others to go out, collect data, and do the calculations to measure well stored in other natural capital assets. Isn't that wonderful? Now, it's all ties together at the right time, same time, folks. Eh? And in this article, is this the year to start valuing natural capital? It's just coincidence, you see, it just burst out everywhere. In 2015, businesses, governments, and non-profits, that's non-NGOs that are paid and funded and given their directions and training by the big tax-free foundations owned by the, the big charitable institutions like Rockefeller, Carnegie, Ford, and all the other ones, you see, across the world. And you think, you're, why are you voting governments, guys in government? Why? They will never mention this stuff. They'll sign the treaties that are all put in front of them. In 2015, businesses, governments, and non-profits were together to achieve several historic milestones, including the launch of the Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs, and the Paris Agreement at the 21st session of the Conference of the Parties, the COP21. 
Interesting term to cop, because you know a cop is also a policeman, you see. And it's also a conference of parties, as like they call it, for this for the international treaties into austerity and global management of all resources, including you. This year brings new hope that business and governments will continue to embrace embrace all of that the value of nature and decision making investments and financial reporting by measuring and accounting for the direct and indirect impacts and dependencies on natural capital. Natural capital is one of the planet's most valuable assets, but many of nature's services are essentially invisible because they are not traded on markets, nor is their value captured by traditional accounting systems. So not only are carbon uh, taxes and so on being traded already, another, you know, hot air balloon, but uh, for, the, for, for a certain few, you know, not for all of you. But you're also going to do the same thing with this made-up thing on all natural resources, including the blades of grass in your back lawn. But you'll pay for all. Globally, government and corporate accounts are missing more than $40 trillion from their balance sheets. Well, my goodness, why is that? They're missing it. Lightly conservative estimate of the total value of natural capital worldwide. My God, do you know that? They're just missing it. Imagine if you had it missing even a, even a hundred dollars or two, you'd be put in prison. But government, no. Natural capital is one of the planet's most valuable assets, but many of nature's services are essentially invisible. No kidding. That's how we're run by those that are invisible to the public. For example, a recent analysis of over 1,000 global primary production and primary processing sectors estimated the unpriced cost of natural capital degradation at $7.3 trillion. How can you even estimate it when it's always going up and down, up and down, when it costs your money and blah, blah, and on the cons that go on? They tried to bamboozle you with statistics as well. That's a great one, but all the way back to Malthus. If managed well, natural capital is a long-term asset, does not depreciate, and can represent a cost-effective way of achieving multiple development goals. Oh, here we go with development goals. Such as food and water security, climate change mitigation, and adaptation. So you've all got to adapt to their con, you see. A well-managed forest such as Rwanda's Nyungwe forest can regulate water for drinking. Agriculture and hydroelectricity store carbon, support pollinators, and provide recreational opportunities. The private sector is already realizing the economic benefits of restoring and conserving viable natural capital. Fantastic. It goes on and on again, praising the natural capital protocol. Oh, it's like Lenin again and Marx and all that. Uh, will be launched in July. The Natural Capital Coalition developed this framework to help companies measure their risks and dependencies on natural capital. A range of contributors, including the EY, have collaborated to develop the protocol and are pilot testing it. Nature is no longer only in the domain of environmental ministries, non-governmental organizations, donors, or foundations. Not only make sure your politicians sign all in the law, you see. That's what, that's what the politicians are there for. Several SDGs have ambitious targets related to natural capital. For example, Goal 15, known as Life on Land. Ooh, Life on Landy. This is a, a, a target to integrate ecosystems and biodiversity values into national and local planning. 
There you go. Development processes, this is all cost money, where are you going to get it? Poverty reduction strategies and accounts by 2020. Again, at least 5, 10, 50, depends what, what part of the plan they're talking about, you see. This is a very old tactic by the same people who have always run the world. In the month preceding COP21, businesses committed to maintaining and securing natural capital as a cost-effective way to reduce climate emissions, support climate change adaptation, advance sustainable development. For example, numerous companies, members of the We Mean Business Coalition, committed to remove commodity-driven deforestation from supply chains by 2020. And the White House issued a memorandum in October directing federal agencies to incorporate the, the value of natural infrastructure and ecosystem services into their planning, investment, and regulatory decisions. Then they go on about different um, declarations and so on. See where it's all going, folks? Where it's supposed to go, planned to go, you see. I say we're living through the script. Now, here we have... Another one on the same topic. It's just coincidence, you understand. That's, it's not a meme, no. It's, a, it's just coincidence. From the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. What's nature worth? Study puts a price on groundwater and other natural capital. Oh, is that worth? That's a term again, eh? Just came out of nowhere, eh? And it says most people understand that investing in the future is important, and that goes for conserving nature and natural resources too. But in the case of investing in such natural assets as groundwater, forests, and fish populations, it can be challenging to measure the return on that investment. So get into your heads, folks. It's all to do with money you see and prices on everything you take for granted you see that nature supplied you with. A Yale-led research team has adapted traditional asset valuation approaches to measure the value of such natural capital assets, linking economic measurements of ecosystem services services, eh, with models of natural dynamics and human behavior. Writing in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, oh, science again, the gods, eh? The authors demonstrate how to price natural capital using the example of the Kansas High Plains Groundwater Aquifer. You see? Contra analysis, groundwater extraction, and changes in aquifer management policies, driven largely by subsidies and new technology, reduced the state's total wealth held in groundwater by $110 million per year between 1996 and 2005. Isn't that it's amazing what they can do these days with prices on things like that and work it all out? Eh? Isn't that fantastic? The money magicians, eh? Uh-huh. Measuring the value of natural capital can allow governments and businesses to redefine conservation expenditures as investments. And guess who's going to pay for it all? Eh? Now he mentions Eli again, the Fenical and so on. And again, I'll put that one back up. And it also mentions who else is in it? Such ideas have been advanced by the United Nations and the World Bank. Oh, isn't that amazing that this group is set off to take the whole world's resources over and manage it properly, you see. You know, this real elite, you see, that created the Lord Alfred Milner Group, then it became the Royal Institute for International Affairs, private organization still, and its branches across the world, one in the U.S. called the Council on Foreign Relations. All media guys are, are members of the top, and so on and so on. And anybody's, anybody's a member of them. And they're the Trilateral Commission, which they own as well, 
It runs all the central bank systems. And the Bank for International Settlements and the World Bank, they set up too. All private institutions that they run and own, you see. But you pay for them all. Hmm. And the IMF. So here's the UN and the World Bank, you see, advancing. advancing. However, a problem with measuring such inclusive or comprehensive wealth has been measuring the prices of natural capital. Thank God they've got the sciences, eh? And it goes on and on and on. And in this article here, you see, which is, what's nature worth again? So it's price on groundwater, another natural capital again. I'll, I'll mention that one. And uh, again, the UN, the World Bank. DEFRA revamps natural capital committee. You see, DEFRA. And what's DEFRA now? Now, have all these, you need a massive set of dictionaries to, to, to work out all the, the cons and, and all the terms they're using to con us with, you see, and bamboozle until you just give up. That's the idea of them all, you see. And you keep voting in individuals into politics. Look around you. Look at all the stuff I've been reading over the years with all these DEFRAs and everything else I got out there and cops and blah, blah, 21 and yada, yada, yada. Why you say that there's so many of them? It's to make you all give up and not really get it, what's really happening and what's running the world on behalf of the money masters. So DEFRA revamps Natural Capital Committee as a World Wildlife Fund calls for a system of natural stress tests. Ooh. Well, we're under stress, aren't we? They make sure of that, don't they? Good Lord. And there ain't anything natural about that. But I'll put this one up here about this too. But it talks about um, revamping its natural capital committee. Or NCC, stuck about the dictionary as well. But DEFRA, what's DEFRA again, eh? It's Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. No kidding, eh? That's the UK's version. But they have them from all over. Every country's got them itself, you see. Do you understand we don't vote for the UN, UN, the IMF, the World Bank, that comes from foreign relations or the Honesty for International Affairs or any of these systems? We don't vote for that. Why you bought? They run the world. These politicians don't. They're just there to rubber stamp whatever's put in front of them by the, the guys that do run these organizations. The parallel government, the real government, folks, the over-government. So here we go into this one. The new members on the committee include Professor Colin Meyer from the Said Business School at the University of Oxford. Professor Diane Coyle from the University of Manchester, who's also a director of Enlightenment Enlightenment Economics. Enlightenment, eh? That's because they, they just tax you until there's nothing in your pockets. You see, you're a lot lighter. And Professor Georgina Mace, I guess she's carries her in her purse, who's Professor of Biodiversity and Ecosystems at the UCL and Director of the Centre for Biodiversity and Environment Research. That goes all the way back to Maury Strong, you see. You know, biodiversity tree. Did you vote for Strong? No, of course not. Or his NGO? No. Well, how come you just put that in front of the government still signed it in your law? They'll be joined by Professor Ian Bateman, an environmental economist and director of the Centre for Social and Economic Research and Global Environment. 
but called Sea Surge, added to the dictionary. Professor Cathy Willis, Director of Science at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Q, Founding Director of the Oxford University Biodiversity Institute, and currently also Professor of Biodiversity and Head of Long-Term Ecology Laboratory at the University of Oxford, and Professor Paul Langser, Professor of Environmental Assessment at Cranfield University and former Chief Executive of the Environment Agency. You see, remember what I've said before, the world is to be run by the, those in academia, with all the new cons that they've dreamed up for new titles and stuff, you see. On behalf of the money boys, you can vote for who you want. You don't vote for these folk, but they, they run the world. So at the top, you've got the money men, of course. And then their staff of all these con folk who give themselves amazing credentials for nonsense. The points are welcomed by the Environment Secretary Liz Truss, unfortunate name that, because eh? uh, she's got a hernia and needs a truss. She's uh, only because she was just lifting money from the public. Through bringing together considerable skills and experience from a wide range of backgrounds, this new NCC will provide expert advice on how to expand their knowledge of natural capital. How best to use open data to drive environmental improvement and apply what we have learned and practiced through the 25-year plan. There you go again, 25-year plan for the environment, she said in a statement. Oh. You see, the future's all planned. for You don't vote for any of these folks. Hmm? You don't vote for any of them, folks. The new committee is expected to build on previous work on the economic value provided by natural capital. So it's economic value, you see, and ecosystem services and so on and so on. Then you go on to this one here. Now, every country has got one of these guys that's been out there for years as front folk to brainwash generations, actually, some of them, into loving little furry animals and things by giving you nature programs. And David Suzuki, oh, you've all heard of Suzuki. No, not the motorbike one. But the, the, this guy who, who really is a geneticist and a, he believes in eugenics, eugenicist, you see. And every country's got one of them, you see, put out there for years and years by the TVs that you all watch. I don't watch TVs. I, I, I don't watch TV. For, I haven't watched it for years, years, because I knew what it was all for. So here's David Suzuki, who isn't elected to anything either, putting a price on carbon. The principle that polluters should pay for the waste they create has led many experts to urge governments to put a price on carbon emissions. One method is sometimes controversial cap-and-trade. Quebec, California and the European Union have already adopted cap-and-trade, and Ontario will join Quebec and California's system in January 2017. But is it a good way to address climate change? Isn't it? So we're going to pay taxes and for gasoline and carbon and outlook fires and so on uh, that teach you from the winter time and so on and Suzuki that you don't elect and he's, you know is a big uh, that's his, he's a front man you see Mr. Genesist and geneticist it says an overall limit a cap on the amount of greenhouse gas emissions a province can emit again another beautiful con that one is he and it tells polluters such as heavy industry and electricity generators how many tons of carbon each can release, and so on, and so on, and so on. And uh, it's quite a long article, actually. And how are the experts and experts and experts? And in 2015, a paper on 
in Canadian public policy. I'll put the links up there too. Claim Quebec system is still too uh, weak to meaningfully address the environment imperatives as outlined in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's 2014 Fifth Assessment Synthesis Report. <laughs> in which fully eliminating carbon emissions is a benchmark for long-term policy goals. We'll all be dead then because we'll all breathe it out, carbon dioxide. And also... I'll put up tonight, it's a little video from a guy who worked for The Sun TV. I never saw it because I never watched TV or anything. But it's a great rundown on this con man, David Suzuki, you see, this environmentalist who rakes in cash like you wouldn't believe. And I'm sure he spends far more than carbon output. And from all he's, I'm sure he's got different places he lives and et cetera, et cetera. And all these little things that he likes, like being surrounded by beautiful young females, he demands to be supplied when he gives talks uh, in, in universities and so on. He demands that they supply him a whole, whole bevy of these ones to escort him down the aisles and so on, this, this old character. But I'll put uh, two uh, videos upon that. And also the one I've mentioned before, I've, I've gone through all these articles myself, and the, the red articles before, go into the archive section at cuttingthroughmates.com, remember, and, uh, you, and, and try and donate once in a while as well, or buy the discs and books at cuttingthroughmates.com to help me tick over here as well. But uh, I've read about David Suzuki over the air, and... Uh, I went through his whole agenda and who he really is, etc. And and when you see him at university, when he was teaching at university and so on, and you you see him on one of these videos saying that people are just maggots, you see. And there's different classes of maggots. There's elite maggots at the top, and the ones below them get the droppings, richer droppings naturally, to the ones below them. And then you get uh, the ones at the bottom, they get the poorest quality droppings. Uh, put out by uh, that layer of maggots above them. Uh, this is this is the, this is the character that's this involved in telling you you already pay into the dirt basically until you're in the dirt itself, and even then you'll pay to be buried in the dirt or burnt in the dirt or whatever it happens to be or dust. You better understand what you're dealing with here, folks, and who these folk really are. It's just incredible, just incredible. Well, that's it, folks. Um, for the end of this series, I hope, anyway. I could go on and on for probably a year on just a, a lot of these kind of things, but most folk don't want to hear it. They can't handle it. They'd rather believe that um, some politician will ride into town and uh, chomp in a cigar and clean it all up for them, you see. And all the stuff I'm talking about is irrelevant to them. It's too big for them. Uh, they want, you see, they won't, they won't manage their own lives and they won't open their own mouths and speak out themselves everywhere they go in this life or death situation. From Hamish Marcel from Ontario, Canada, this is good night. Me, your God, your gods go with you. <laughs>